I recorded an intro to this episode on the Florida Gulf Coast on October 5th, Friday, that was before Hurricane Michael. I'm going to leave that intro intact, but I just wanted to add in here why I sound so happily oblivious, and I'm recording from the Florida Gulf Coast at the beginning of this episode. I'm actually quite attached to that region, and as you'll hear in the intro, and I get all nostalgic, and I'm heartbroken for all the folks down there in South Alabama, South Georgia, and North Florida as they recover from this uh, catastrophic hurricane. I just donated $10 to the Red Cross, and I encourage all of you guys to go and do the same. It's super easy, only takes a second, and it would really be nice to help those folks out. So here's the originally recorded intro from October 5th. Hi y'all, welcome back to Peachy Keen. I'm Vivian Liddell, and this is my podcast. So here we are at episode 19 of Peachy Keen. So far, I've talked to artists and art folks from Tennessee, North Carolina, Florida, Texas, and of course, quite a few Georgians. And in today's episode, we've got our very first chat with a bona fide Alabamian, Jenny Fine. I usually record these intros back at my house in Athens, but today I'm actually coming to you from my grandparents' old school 70s era fishing shack. Yeah, there's actually green shag carpeting still in here and wood paneling on the walls on Apalachicola Bay near Santa Rosa Beach, Florida, which is also known affectionately, I would say, as the Redneck Riviera. So, if you hear any rumbling truck engines in the background, that's what's happening. It's been a a long day of hopping around my old stomping grounds in South Georgia and Alabama. My own Alabama roots go deep. I don't know if I've talked about that here on the podcast, but my grandmother and my great-grandmother were both born in Eclectic, which is a very small town near Wetumpka, That's right, the metropolis of Wetumpka is the nearest reference town for you there. And I spent my childhood being constantly carted around by my parents between this very house that I'm in now in Santa Rosa Beach, my grandparents' house in Wetumpka, and our house in Albany, Georgia. So I tell you all of that to say that I'm super familiar with the South Georgia, South Alabama landscape, and it hits a kind of bittersweet spot with me whenever I'm down in this region. Maybe something a little bit like homesickness? I'm not sure. So anyway, although it was 92 degrees today, which is high in October even for this part of the south, it was really a beautiful day for driving the back roads, which I generally prefer over the interstate when I'm going back to South Georgia. I think it makes me feel like a teenager again. So it's, uh, it's beautiful out there. It's high cotton time. The fields are mostly ripe. I saw one cotton crop that had already been picked and sorted into bales. They wrap them in a kind of bright yellow plastic that I really love against the browns of the land and the white of the cotton. Fun podcast host fact. I used to pick cotton when I was a kid on a farm adjacent to my grandparents' place. They would send us out after the machines had come through to pick any of the leftover cotton by hand. Of course, I hated it. It was not in any way enjoyable. Um, I vaguely remember getting a very small payout. I feel like there were actual coins, like a quarter for a certain amount of picking involved for this child labor. I'll have to check with my cousin on that. I'm not exactly sure. But I do have to admit that I now get a certain feeling of nostalgia when I see fields of cotton. It is mostly a visual thing, as I said. The colors and the surprise of seeing all that white, fluffy texture in a field. So anyway, these are the kinds of thoughts I was having as I drove through the back roads, through South Georgia and Alabama, surrounded by pecan groves, cotton fields, 
And while I'm getting into the observed reality of my drive, I feel the need to point out two last things that stood out to me on this trip. Number one, this is the mythical land where the dogs run free. I counted seven dogs that made me slow down because they were so close to the road. One of them actually, maybe two of them actually in the middle of the road. And thing number two that I'd like to point out finally here, there were a lot more Stacey Abrams signs than I would have expected to see outside of my normal blue bubble of Athens and Atlanta. And in case you are in a bubble, Abrams is running for governor here in Georgia and is the first, I say here, I'm actually in Florida right now, but I guess my head is in Georgia. Abrams is running for governor in Georgia and is the first black female major party nominee ever in a gubernatorial race in the whole United States. So, go Georgia. My unofficial election radar may be off because the Republican candidate in the race against Abrams, uh, his name is Brian Kemp, is actually from Athens. So there are a lot more of his signs in Athens than you would normally see from a Republican candidate. What does it all mean? I, I cannot say. All I can say is, I was surprised at how many Stacey Abrams signs were up in the more rural parts of the state. We'll see how that all goes down. Anyway, there's your scene setting. Jenny, who I'm going to talk to on today's episode, was raised on a farm, and that plays a strong part in her work. So she'll get a little into her connection to the land and its agricultural history as well later in this episode. Thanks to Dana Marie Limmer at the Wiregrass Museum in Dothan for introducing me to Jenny's work and to all of the folks at the Wiregrass for letting us set up in their classroom to chat today. Hi, Laura. Hi, Robin. Uh, Laura comes sneaking in. I say sneaking, but she totally had permission to come in and take pictures about midway through this episode. So if you hear us uh, getting flustered and me mumbling something about a photo op, that's what's happening. All right, here's me and Jenny in the classroom upstairs at the Wiregrass Museum in Dothan, Alabama. Check it out. I'm from Enterprise, which is where I'm teaching. Okay. I'm teaching at Enterprise State Community so College. So hometown. Yes, my hometown. Actually, uh, my grandmother, who's a big figure in my work, taught there. She taught uh, oh, well. for, I think... 16 years there, but I think in general she taught for 40 years, um, and so... What did she teach? Oh, gosh, what didn't she teach? Uh, so, at the community college, I think she was certified to teach six different subjects, so mm-hmm. she taught, like, French, geography, English. Oh, wow. She was super... In, uh, I think... Uh, was she superintendent of education for Ozark City Schools, I think, at one point, point. Um, and I mean, she's she was an educator. She was a teacher. That's what she did. Um, and so it's kind of neat. In my office, which is in the Fine Arts Building at the Junior College, I was kind of just looking around in the the uh, closet that shares the wall to my office um, has some old yearbooks, and so I was flipping through them, and uh, and she was in there. And so it was you know really nice to know that like I share sort of an office wall with her image. <laughs> and this is the grandmother that's in your work a lot and she's passed away, right? Yes. So and that's and you live with a different grandmother. Yes. Okay. I do. I do. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I figured that so when you said meet up at Granny's house <laughs> that you didn't mean your grandma that was no longer with us. Right. Or um, yeah. And so is it just you and Granny in the house? It is. So my grandfather died about I guess it's been about two years ago now, and I've lived with her for about a year and a half, on and off. I've I taught in Birmingham adjunct. Um, a lot of my teaching for them is online. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would spend the summers here and the fall and spring semesters uh, when I was teaching in-person classes in Birmingham, and but now have a full-time teaching position at the community college. So okay. I'm there full-time and um, still teaching a little bit online. And that's interesting coming back to my hometown. I'm it's, it's kind of a wonder that um, it's kind of a wonder that I ever became an artist being from there. Um, it's just uh, art was reserved for like you know little old ladies painting you know magnolia 
pictures of magnolias in the library, you know. And so is that how you got into art? Did you, were you painting things or like, you know, did you have, were you painting little barn scenes like we do in the, around here? Yeah, <laughs> I mean. that's, that's an interesting question. So my grandmothers are really, both are very creative. Mm-hmm. They've been really uh strong forces in my life my you know in my life my entire life mm-hmm. um you know as as we do we uh we go to our grandparents house you know when our parents are working and uh during the summers and stuff both of my grandparents because my grandmother um my grandmother fine who's now flat granny in my work mm-hmm. she was an educator a teacher and loved uh to con- she just loved to learn so she was always picking up new uh, new skills and and then passing it on to us because she was naturally a teacher and so we would have you know these sort of uh, etiquette training and stuff when we were little like painting and t- uh, tea parties with little dimitas and who cups. is we what my sisters okay. so I ha- and also my cousins so um, there there I have two cousins and then three there's three girls I'm in one of the three girls so I have two sisters. Um, and Richard, my the only boy cousin in the family, he uh, he is also an artist. Okay. And so, uh, but we would, you know, she she taught us to paint and and to draw and to make things with our hands when we were when we were kids. And so, my grandmother Caldwell, my granny Caldwell that I live with now, she's always just she's an artist as well um she's a self-trained artist she has that really i don't know if i'm sure athens georgia probably has it but it, i'm very aware of the quality of making do in alabama as, right. as an aesthetic mm-hmm. um and so i think she definitely has that make do whereas nothing goes to waste like uh, objects are recycled and reused and there's repurposed. There's a famous uh, Lucy Lepard, feminist critic. There's a famous essay of hers from the 70s that's called Making Something Out of Nothing, Ooh, which is read all about this very thing. Um, and it's she talks about bricolage, so making things from nothing, and the whole idea of class. Um, right. And I, I, I find that so many people um, that are from working class or you know backgrounds from the South this is just a natural thing. Right. You know, you don't, you can't have the money to buy oil paints or whatever. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, and, and there's just some really beautiful, I think really beautiful, uh, illustrations of that. Like there's mm-hmm. graveyards around here yeah. that have like, you know, people didn't have, uh, money to buy a monument. So they'd make their own, mix the concrete, stick a, um, a gray, a, a grill rack or an oven rack in the ground and then pat some concrete around it i saw some beautiful fall displays on the way here even people are really wishing for fall to happen oh, yeah. you know? it's still really hot <laughs> it's like 92 degrees outside yeah, yeah, yeah. but there's already the haystacks with the with the yes. fake uh fall colored leaves around them and the scarecrows uh-huh. i mean i saw a lot of those right on the way down i was enjoying that uh-huh you know i saw a uh i saw a church sign just down the street it said it's fall good <laughs> <laughs> that's it. It's fall. Good. That's it. That was it. We have spoken. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you've been encouraged your whole life to do this. And then, what about? And what? What did your parents do? What were they so doing my this? my mom was um, a bookkeeper. Okay. My dad's a farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother, fine, flat granny's husband, um, was he was in the army, but when he retired, he became a farmer, and okay. he my my uh, father and my uncle really were raised sort of in that kind of environment working on the farm they had he had a feed store and my dad and uncle took that over when he passed away and eventually my dad took it on solely and then uh, it's no longer in business now but uh, my mom was the bookkeeper there when they were married they're not married any longer but she still does that sort of work Mm -hmm. um and you know, my granny Caldwell was a homemaker. Um, she worked, had odd jobs here and there throughout life. She worked in a, fa- a factory on the factory line. She worked in a sewing factory at one time. She worked as a phone op- telephone operator. Um, but, you know, I, th- I forgot what our question was. Um, I was just asking <laughs> about what your parents did, and I was yeah. curious about, like, 
So you, at the point that you're going to go off to college, you went to the University of Alabama. Right. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted to study. I mean, I remember being at my dad's store growing up and being uh, people asking you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'm like, I have no idea. I don't know, I don't know what I want to be. Um, and then I got to Tuscaloosa, the University of Alabama, and I was in school for two years, and I still felt really lost. And then this opportunity to go to China to teach English sort of fell in my lap. And so I took that and I took a a year off of school and got outside of myself and my culture. And um, really in in that experience really found my direction that I wanted to go go down and that was art to study art so I came back to Tuscaloosa and began formally studying art did you run across anything in China or like anything that did you start taking photographs or when did you start doing photography yes so before I left my well you know my mom got me a camera when I was a a kid Mm -hmm. so I've been doing it for a while but that that year she did uh put in some savings and right before I left for China she was like you gotta have a good camera Mm. so she got me a camera Uh and while I was there like I was you know was able to like acquire on my own a a lens that I really liked and uh, just started photographing and really started um, learning about the photographic culture in China they have really interesting like wedding photography kind of culture it's it's really interesting but um anyway came back and decided to to pursue that full-time the, mm-hmm. the photograph and uh, was actually through studying with Gay Burke at the University of Alabama about the photograph I was always um, I didn't realize, realize I guess that I really wanted to be an artist I guess my entry point was to go you know to be a photographer and to right. study the photograph um, I'm not exactly sure why. I guess it it really speaks from a language that I mean it, it models life, right? Mm-hmm. It mirrors life. Um, I was really interested in I know now the aspect of time and how we can control time through the photograph that we can freeze it that but that it does certain things, you know, it crops out all of the live things around us. It crops out the smell, the sound, really the performance that's happening in front of the camera. And so I remember uh, as I was studying photography with Gay, I would always talk to her about being frustrated um, that it wasn't enough. Like the photograph was really the right uh, form to speak through but it didn't it didn't satisfy all of the things that I wanted to say or mm-hmm. or needed to say it wasn't able to communicate all those things so I was really uh, not necessarily frustrated but I just I felt it had limitations and then you did you go straight to grad school from there I did not okay. I actually stayed in Tuscaloosa for two years I taught elementary school art um, in Tuscaloosa uh, and just continued making work I I was really thankful for that position, but I knew that it was a really exhausting thing to perform for children for eight hours a day, five days a week. Um, And so I knew that I, and it also, the dialogue about art was really limited, you know. Uh, It was really inspiring to work with the kids, and I loved it, but I knew that I had, uh, I wanted to have more of a dialogue. Right. Um, And I, I think I, through that I learned that I wanted to uh, pursue art and higher education. Mm-hmm. And so um, went to grad school at OSU. And so it took me two years, actually. I was still making work, um, still participating in you know local exhibitions and things like that. Um, but I wanted, I really desired to be a part of a community where there was an ongoing dialogue, that I was part of the conversation. And... Um, yeah, and so, so I So why Ohio? Well, because Anne Hamilton was there, and also because they gave scholarships. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to, you have to remember that I'm from a rural community in southeast Alabama. People are farmers. My mom was worried to death. Like, how are you going to make work? Like, make money? How are you going to support yourself? Like, you don't need a degree to do this, Jennifer. Like, 
you know, she's just trying to be really practical right. and realistic. My parents divorced when I was in middle school, and so she was a single parent, and she was like, you, uh, you really need to be able to take care of yourself because you don't know what the future will hold. And so she was concerned for mm-hmm. me. And so, um, and then my dad, on the other hand, was, uh, he's a farmer. And so a lot of his life has been really based off of chance, what the weather will bring, right? And right. that he, uh, he truly believes that if you work hard at what you love, that it will lead to... S- it will lead to somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, I, uh, I got into schools with Gay's help, my, uh, Gay Burke, my undergrad professor. She was really wonderful. I was still in Tuscaloosa teaching and she agreed to help me, uh, look at my letters and, uh, applications and that kind of thing. And really talk to me and continue to be my mentor and teacher, talk to me about what I wanted out of grad school and, uh, just helped me find ans- helped me to find answers, and so um, I got into school. I got into a lot of different art schools. I don't say that. I say that to tell you that I realized in all of that decision that I had to go somewhere uh, that I could afford. Right. right. That I couldn't go to San Francisco if there wasn't going to be able to pay for the school and to live out there. Like all of those things, I wasn't able to take that chance, and it has, you know. It, it has um, directed my path mm-hmm. and my, you know, my career, the path that I've taken. I mean, um, there's consequences to every decision, right? right. Um, but anyway, I, uh, so that's what I've done. I've, um, I'm now back in my hometown. And ever, I didn't know that I would come back. I didn't know. You know, I don't know. So how long were you in Ohio? I was in Ohio for five years. So you stayed after school. Yes, because I, okay, so I stayed and I worked with Ann Hamilton in her studio mm. for about, um, there There was one year of grad school and I think I stayed an additional three or four years. So, um, and and that was incredible, an incredible um, education. Mm-hmm. In first of all, she's an incredibly generous, uh, warm, thoughtful person and, um, and so that was really wonderful to just see how she works and carries herself as a businesswoman right. and as an artist. Um, and it was really a great education on the day-to-day practice of what an artist does, what, what that practice looks and like. And what kind of uh, photographs does she do? She doesn't. So she's a, an internationally renowned installation artist. Oh, and okay. she does photography. She's an interdisciplinary artist. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so... It was, it, I think, working with her and her practice, she early on often placed herself within her practice mm-hmm. in a performative way. And I think that working with her has helped me um, <clears throat> sort of ease into that practice. I never really intended to be a performance artist, um, but my work is really moving in that direction. We took a few minutes to look at her most recent work, In Unison, a stop-motion film that she's been working on over the last year. It documents various clogging-related art performances that she's done and combines them with family footage. The work begins with an old film of children running around a haystack, presumably playing cowboy and Indian. Then it cuts to performances that involve people dancing, wearing brightly colored clogging costumes, holding photographic cutouts in front of them, which include images of Fine's grandmother, peanut stacks, and George Washington Carver. One of the women, in clogging costume, appears to be riding on a giant boll weevil. latest work? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And is that a boll weevil that they were riding on? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. This yeah. thing's a weird looking. Yeah, they It's like are. an anteater or something. Yeah. yeah. But it's also my version of it, so. Uh. <laughs> Did you, what did you make that out of, that boll weevil? Uh, well, it was made out of a rocking horse that I got from the thrift store. And then somebody had thrown out a, uh, 
what do they call those uh, couches? It was a couch. Oh. Um, Broy Hill, a Broy uh-huh. Hill couch. Somebody had thrown that out, so I ripped that thing apart and took all the foam out of it, and it's made out of the foam and wow. uh, duck uh, masking tape and paint. What are those red things that are dancing on the? Aha, uh-huh. those are somewhere. peanut stacks. Okay, just stacks. Of They're peanuts. just stacks of peanuts because you people used to um, instead of just using the combine and picking mm-hmm. it, they would. Um, they would stack them up. They would they would dig them up, and then they would stack them at the end of every row. Where they'd put a tree in the ground and then stack the peanuts on top, so it became these mounds. So they're dancing peanuts. And then who's the woman that's eating the peanuts? That's my granny that I live with. Oh, okay, that's yeah. your current yes uh, mm-hmm. housemate. Yes, yes, and she is playing the bones, uh-huh. which is uh, a usual accompaniment. To clogging, like mm-hmm. early forms of clogging. Does she clog? Or it was she never granny? did clog. Okay. It was my other granny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But she's she she tried her hand at it <laughs> for the performance. Wow, she really gets into it. What does she think about these close-up pictures of her chewing peanuts? Like? Yeah, she don't like them. She's like, <laughs> why can't you make me look good? Yeah, so that's very interesting because it is like you've got the whole uh, cowboys and Indians thing at the beginning, uh-huh. which I feel like we all played as children and right. we're just crazy racist. Yes. And what I've learned... Oh, go, go ahead. Go no, ahead. go ahead. What I've learned, I, I heard an interview on NPR. Um, it's been probably a year ago. It was around 4th of July that the interview was happening, but they were talking about just the racist things that people do and 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 how they misplace and misuse Indian culture and they were talking about that war Mm -hmm. cry sound is actually and I I need to Google again Mm -hmm. but it's actually um, a woman a female cry Mm. and it's a cry of mourning interesting and so uh, the the guy was talking about that for to people for Indian Native Americans to see white people doing that it's pretty ridiculous because it's like taking on this very feminine role and also this role this like sadness and longing um for right. the lost person so it doesn't make any sense at all doesn't make any it. sense it's not a war cry no yeah not at all so that's very interesting yeah and so i think i think i'm moving towards like a project with sound as well like mm-hmm. um that also that the yodel the the mm-hmm. southern form of the yodel mm-hmm. American South is actually was it originated around the Civil War when Southerners were leaving their homes for the first time and it became this sound for longing for home mm. it was a sound of nostalgia which I thought was really interesting that is very interesting I mean I don't know what all will happen with it but I think there's something there at least, but, but yeah, there's, I think, you know, I, I, this was made, this stop motion film was made in the privacy of, well, it was made in performances, like these public performances, but also parts of it were made in the privacy of my home with my granny. And it was just me and her, you know, two country white women, you know, reenacting these things. And so, uh, I, it was done out of necessity a lot of times to have her wearing George Washington Carver's face and I didn't really think about the fact of it being sort of a assimilation of blackface in a way right. and then you know so then it starts to ask the question of what does it mean if if blackface is an imitation and taking over the power of how people see African Americans um, and really sort of stereotyping them in a way then what does it mean to actually put a brilliant you know black scientist on wear that on top of your white skin what does that mean right and I know that's the that's at least a question that I'm asking for myself um I don't know yeah it made me think about the um the casket painting that was in the Whitney that oh yeah right um, yeah right I know and that so that's what terrifies me is that you can get through all of this these possible critiques and like you know and that it it still could come out as uh, harming rather than as a you know I don't know that her intention was to whitewash Emmett Till's face right Right. um 
I, I don't know what it was. You know, I, mean, I know that she said that she's also a mother. Maybe it was a way of trying to, to look at that. But yeah, it definitely, I, I see where, I see where it's problematic. Right. And so, you know, those are the things that I, I step towards this work and make me nervous, right? Like mm-hmm. that, it, that when I went into the, into that community with a procession in my mind and I was in Fairfield in Birmingham, um, it's a pro- predominantly African-American uh, community. And I was, I went and patroned one of the like buffets downtown while I was installing and was inviting people to come and the conversation about the boll weevil came up Mm -hmm. you know and and George Washington Carver and I was talking to him about never wanting to further harm right that but they didn't know like what was what what did you need to do like what was the approach like what's the best way to do it and he was saying well you tell the truth and you tell the whole truth and mm-hmm. so I feel that, I guess, in my responsibility is to really try to, to understand, understand my identity. And like, if I'm born in this vessel of a white female, rural South Alabama. And the I was curious how she got from film photography to these charged and complex performances. So we backed it up a little bit and she gave me some history to help explain her current process. Early on, I when I was studying with Gay in undergrad, this work really, this sort of my practice really started. Um, I would photograph, you know, my grandmothers, the women in my family were always really important. Um, and they were storytellers. Like we passed on, they passed on the narratives of our ancestors, specifically my grandmother Fine. And, you know, I know when you get older and you go through this, this where you need to recount and pass on right. these stories to people. And I guess that was about the time that I picked up my, you know, like really picked up the camera. Um, and so my practice early on in photographing my grandmother really came out of she was available and around. She was retired. So um, you had um, left... Ohio at this point. No, like, this is actually is still. I'm still in Tuscaloosa. Oh, okay. Right. I'm okay. sorry. I went really far back okay. again. Um, but yeah, so I was in Tuscaloosa, beginning to learn how to photograph, learning about apertures and shutter speed and the history of photography and all of those things. And uh, I would come home on some weekends, um, and. You know, I wanted to photograph. I wanted to begin photographing things that were meaningful. I didn't want to just continue to photograph the graves, graveyards, and photograph right. in a in a visual way. I really wanted to. I wanted the photographs to mean something, and at that time, I really wasn't sure what. But to take them back, to return to home, and take them of my family felt familiar, and it felt. Uh, I felt at ease with the process Mm -hmm. because I was familiar with, you know, spending time with my grandmother. So we, my grandmother fine would, um, she was, you know, my grandfather had died. She was living alone at the time. And, um, you know, I just, I would go and spend time with her and photographing was a way of spending time with her. Mm -hmm. And so we would just make a whole event of it, pick out the costumes and, uh, take out, take props and go find these places. And I would always want to photograph in like an abandoned house, <laughs> you know, like, uh, and I, I know now it's because it really has, you know, evidence of history and time, right. Mm-hmm. And that it has these sort of implicit narratives within that evidence of time and history and ruin porn, they call it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> <You know>? right. <laughs> that, Never heard that term, but yeah. Everybody right? has that interest in, in, there's so many buildings kind of falling apart around here and it's like that nostalgia history. Right. And that they've all built into the photo. Well, and not only that, but that they've been witness to right. these histories too. Like that they, some of these places have outlasted the, the humans that, that created the narratives, right? And right. that, uh, so I think, you know, all of those things are really interesting to me and that I think uh, I began to photograph my, my grandmother and through that process, just in needing to slow down and take time to understand the technical aspects of the photograph, she was just really patient with me because she had been an educator. She knew what it, what the process of learning was all about. And she would just hang out and sit there and tell me about her childhood and tell me stories 
uh, as I was focusing the camera. And uh, so really that act of storytelling became really woven into my process of photographing. And so, um, and even that at that moment, like the photograph was still cropping out part of that performative act, right? Even mm-hmm. the sound of the narrative. And so... I then began wanting to reenact these family narratives for the camera and would start to uh, draw in other people from my family. Um, and uh, right as and and then, and then I graduated. And right as I graduated, I was um, I had gotten nominated for this Wingate Fellowship, um, which I had proposed to do uh, wet plate to learn wet plate collodion, which is. Uh, a historic photographic process. It's one of the first ways of making um, uh, a negative, or it is the first way of making, well, no, I guess there's paper negatives, but it's one of the first ways of making glass negatives. Right. Um, and so these, I was really interested in that photographic form that they were almost like, uh, well, they were photographs that were meant to be held and carried with you. They really became sort of the embodiment of the stand-in, right? Uh, if you, there are there there are these glass negatives or tin types, uh, these tin images that are placed within a box, an album that's meant to be. Uh, they're really small. They're meant to be put in your pocket, carried with you as when you're away from your loved ones. So they became uh, sort of this stand-in for the person, not there became really interested in that and wanted to learn that process. So um, I went and studied with, I did get that uh, that grant and was able to go and study um, wet plate collodion with France and Mark Osterman. And, um, you know, it was a, it's a photographic process that really your hand is very evident mm-hmm. in the outcome, your fingerprints, the way the emulsion drips the way that you move your body, all of that was recorded. And it was also um, taking the photograph from an image to then becoming an object, an right. object that recorded time that was that held um, both loss and presence, absence and presence um, in it. And that became really interesting for me. And that was the first sort of step away, still using the photograph, but stepping away from the image into a more three-dimensional and now four-dimensional practice. Um, and you said you were reenacting family narratives with your grandmother. So, like, what type of family narratives? Um, so, uh, the saddest day happened right after. Uh, it was a couple of years after I graduated. I was still taking. I was working as an elementary school art teacher. I was still photographing. Uh, still had this vision of being an artist. And. Um, and uh, I was still photographing my grandmother, and then she all of a sudden like I go home for one uh, for a um, sorry I went home for Mother's Day, and at this time she had already you know started slipping into dementia and um, had had moved away from (laughs) had moved away from living alone and was living with my father on the farm Mm -hmm. and so I had gone home that Mother's Day again to uh, spend time with family but also to reenact a family narrative on the farm and had ordered some costumes and masks and put together some things and when I got home that weekend Mother's Day weekend, she was, I found her upside down on the couch, like her head was like laying um, on the floor and her feet were sort of up in the air as if she had sort of toppled onto the couch. And I was really worried that something was wrong. Um, And so uh, we took her to the emergency room and they ran tests and did all the things that they do and said she was fine. She just had a crick in her neck, maybe from... Anyway, so we moved on. We carried on with the weekend. And um, I wanted to photograph this family narrative of um, uh, the year that... So my, I told you my grandfather became a farmer after he was in the Army. And mm-hmm. it wasn't an easy road, especially in the beginning. And they had invested all their savings into becoming a farmer, becoming farmers. And they um, had gotten uh, some... Uh, fig, uh, sorry, fig, sorry, some pigs, <laughs> um, you know, and they were, they were starting to become, you know, pig farmers and, um, 
Anyway, they had gotten a load of, I think they call them gilts, I'm not really sure, um, from some farmer, and it had, one of those pigs were sick, and so it introduced, um, oh, what was the disease? Dysentery mm-hmm. into the whole, into all the pigs, right? Mm-hmm. And they had to all be slaughtered on the same day, and um, they lost, basically, it devastated my family. And so I was really interested in that narrative of my father and my uncle as young people having to slaughter a hundred pigs or whatever all on the same day and that they often referred to that story as the saddest day and so we went to the farm to really kind of reenact that and that was just sort of the narrative I wanted to reenact I wasn't really sure what was going to happen because I knew that no matter what you do this performance for the camera, no matter how much you prepare, that you're always at the mercy of the moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was using my twin lens uh, Mamiya camera, which you don't look straight forward. You actually look down into the camera. And so I wasn't actually facing this narrative, this my family straight on. We were in the the landscape of the farm, and I'm looking through this square viewfinder straight down. And I'm... uh, the, the landscape, in a way, became the stage. And as they were moving in and out of the frame, they were coming on and off stage. And it became really this theatrical reenactment or attempt to reenact this saddest, the saddest day. So you're, which family members were participating? And they're wearing, what are they wearing during this performance? They're, they're wearing pig masks. Okay. And my, my grandmother is the only one that, it's my sister, cousin, and dad. And my and and then in the video that accompanies it, my nephew is in it. Um, but they're all wearing masks, so they're all the pigs. And mm-hmm. then my grandmother is the only unmasked character. Mm-hmm. And there are images uh, where she's, they're playing tug of war. Um, they're playing telephone. Um, it, it, you know, it was just really. I was looking for gesture in the in the. You know, I was trying to learn how to direct the photographs, all of these things, and um, we knew though. Like as I could tell, I was really nervous. I could tell she kept grabbing her neck. I could tell that something was wrong. That that uh, she she wasn't okay, but she was a trooper, and, like, we just pushed through, and we created these photographs. Um, and the weekend, you know, culminated. We photographed two days in a row, actually. Um, and then at the end of the weekend, I went back to Tuscaloosa to continue teaching elementary school art. And it was later that week that she had to go back into the hospital that somehow the tests and the thing x-rays and the things that they had done at the emergency room um, weren't correct and that she was actually having strokes through Mm -hmm. all of this so that those photographs really became images and documentation of her dying and so uh, that series of images is called the saddest day so it's just photographs that resulted from this there's no there was a performance is uh, there video so there's actually uh video there's eight millimeter footage that was I took on Sunday Mm -hmm. and then this was on Saturday after we had gotten back from the emergency room on my dad's farm um and yes so there's there's square medium format photographs and then there's some eight millimeter footage that became a video um this became part of even though I took these in 2008 and I went on to graduate school she passed away after two uh, two weeks after these photographs were taken Mm. Um, and then I went on to graduate school as I had planned and I continued to work, make work, um, beyond this. Uh, but in the end for my MFA exhibition, I came back to this work and created this series of photographs because it felt like it was a really important part of the narrative Mm -hmm. that needed to be, uh, that needed to be made physical, right. And needed to, uh, it was a chapter that needed to happen before I could move on to another so your aspect of the work. So your grandmother told you these stories about the pig situation, yes, right? Yes, so, yes. But your father was actually the one that was killing the pigs. Right. And he's, and he's in this. Yeah. So yeah. how was his participation in this? Did, did it you know, affect him emotionally or did he give you tips or you know, did he just do whatever you said? I'm just curious. Well, a, you know, he's... Uh, 
he's just always been really supportive. He's really funny mm-hmm. and uh, very engaging and um he just, so he would get into it. And so he was also, you know, trying to help me. Right. You know, he, he loves me and my family loves me and wants to support me. I think a lot of times, especially, I mean, I know at this point, they didn't know what was going on. And I didn't really either, right? right? Um, uh, I'll, all I knew is that there was an image that came to me uh, during he- while hearing that story and that it was something that I wanted to try to capture outside of my mind um and so that's really where the work uh the really the work started moving in that direction trying to reenact these narratives to understand the history that I come from and understand sort of my place within those narratives and the direction that my work is going now is a more regional Mm -hmm. and then hopefully um you know it's just the personal narrative is a way for me to enter this discussion about identity. And I think ultimately where the work is going, and it's scary to me, but the work is going towards uh, this idea about whiteness and what it means to be white and what uh, what our culture really comes from because we're really indebted to uh, Indian Native Americans, to... African slaves. We're indebted to all of these um, these things, and have taken it on as part of our, you know, who we are and our culture and our identity. Are you familiar with Shaniqua Gay's work? No. She was on my podcast and recently, like maybe two episodes ago, and she does similar work, but uh, from the perspective of black history interesting and she does uh she has masks and like performances and photography i see a lot of similarities yeah i should totally reach is she in athens (laughs) she's in atlanta atlanta okay she's teaching at georgia state she's like wow there oh wow yeah you should should yes definitely um so how did all this is flat granny as after the saddest day yes yes i'm sorry i missed a big part of that so how yeah you mentioned flat granny at the beginning so i want to make sure we get into flat granny so that our listeners know what that's about yeah so um i was in grad school and i told you that i ultimately came back to produce this at the end of my two years but my really work in graduate school uh was starting to try to figure out well how do i continue to make these narratives when one of the characters is now dead like how do you continue to work with with her and so um so i was in graduate school and uh my dear friend and talented photographer amy powell uh, was in graduate school with me and she brought in a new york times article about the flat daddy and gave it to me during critique one day because we had i had been talking about really my interest in the history of photography and postmortem photography and again that it's better to have a photograph of your dead child than to not have one at all that right. the, that the photograph became a stand-in for the absent loved one and that the flat daddy was really a very uh, a contemporary uh throwback to this victorian sentiment so i don't know what the flat daddy is so the flat daddy was um uh, I think it's, you know, the National Guard is really who uh, was using these this form. So there's a company that makes flat daddies and the National, I think it was in Michigan. I'm really, my facts aren't very, aren't very clear mm-hmm. on some of this stuff, but you can Google it. Um, but they were making flat daddies for deployed soldiers uh, of the National Guard. So they're not typically not, this is during the Iraq war. And mm-hmm. so... Uh, they're not typically deployed, right? They they usually stay locally, but um, at sort of the beginning of the Iraq War, they were being deployed, and so uh, uh, the National Guard decided to start creating these, working with this company to create photographic life-size photographic cutouts of the of the soldier, oh. and the soldier would remain in the home. And it was from the waist up. They weren't, uh, it was just a, pro, you know, a, a portrait, a bust. Right. And, but they were life-size. And the family would interact with Flat Daddy oh. as if it were their, the real person. Wow. And I just found that to be a really beautiful and interesting uh, connection to the photograph and the power of photography. And a form that I thought I could 
continue to use in my right. own work. And so I began looking at blogs and they were, uh, families were documenting their interactions with flat daddy so that the soldier, deployed soldier could see. They were going to um, the grocery store, flat daddy would be in the little, in the cart with them. Um, they would go to baseball games or the park and flat daddy would be in a, in a swing. And it really resonated with me as a way to continue um, working with the image of my grandmother. And so I started, you know, took the, the beginning steps, blew her up, her photographic image up. And what image to life did you size. use? I used the ones from the saddest day, actually. Okay. So those last living images of her are the ones that I um, have initially been working with. Um, so... Uh, what was interesting about it is that I began to, I introduced Flat Daddy to my father mm-hmm. and his, and at one point I was like, I think I would, I'm going to let her live here for a little while. And so I you left. Flat Granny. Flat Granny. Okay. Yes. Did I say Flat Daddy? Said flat Daddy. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so I decided to introduce, introduce to my dad, Flat Granny. Okay. And so, um, the very first reaction he had was he hugged her and kissed her. Oh. Um, and so this is a life-size, is it a, like a bust cutout just no, like the Flat Daddies? Or? No, it's a life-size cardboard cutout um, from the head to toe okay. of, of her at her actual size. Um, but she's, and it's photographs of her um, that I took. And it's just backed with cardboard. And okay. so it started out just as a simple cutout. Um, and placing that simple cutout, um, and I, within sort of the frame and interacting, uh, I wanted to, so I didn't want it to be like Ronald McDonald, right? right? I didn't want her to be like this mascot sort of image. And so I started, uh, I decided that I wanted flat granny to sort of be within this environment that she that she was naturally in and so I, le- I decided to leave flat granny at home and I came back would visit and to, to find that dad had began to build these vignettes around the house oh of gosh. like you know feeding her and like fixing her favorite like breakfast cereal and having it in her lap and I just found that to be really interesting and that I think he found it pretty therapeutic actually mm-hmm. Um, and so I then began to start thinking about that I wanted to return. I wanted to be able to animate her body. I didn't want her to be so static. Right. I wanted to, in a way, animate it. Bring. I wanted to breathe life back into her. I wanted to give her movement again. So on a residency, I worked towards building a costume and making her into a costume with movable parts. And that sort of began the performative aspect of Flat Granny, where I was creating then these environments in which Flat Granny would perform. And is this where the clogging came in? Well, uh, from from that, <laughs> from that, I then decided I wanted to reenact these family narratives with Flat Granny, and so I recalled and, and I, I I created a traveling uh, performative cyclorama um, that. I traveled. I actually toured it. It took about three years to do the tour oh and the, the making it and everything. Um, and Wiregrass Museum of, of Art was one of the hosts here. Um, and it was an immersive installation. And is, was this your solo show that you were talking about? Yes. 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 Okay. Uh, an immersive installation that required volunteer performers, costumes, Flat Granny and I were back-to-back riding a cotton float. It was recalling, it was recalling her reign as woman of the year in enterprise and i used uh cot hand-picked cotton from what year was her woman of the year was this in her youth or 1968 so she was teaching at the the junior college that i'm now teaching at and uh, was named woman of the year and our home my hometown has the boll weevil monument which is the only monument to an insect in the world mm-hmm. um it's and so i use and, and it's really interesting because we have this tiny little main street and in smack dab in the middle of the intersection is this monument to a bug mm-hmm. started out as like a horse trough like watering place um the history of it is is that i know this is getting really long uh, the history of, of it is is that um Enterprise was uh, created after 
like 20 years after the Emancipa Emancipation Proclamation. It's mm -hmm. not a place where plantations were, I mean, perhaps Dothan was, but Enterprise specifically was more of a sharecropping kind of town. Right. Um, and so we, they initially were growing cotton. The boll weevil came, destroyed the cotton. Simultaneously, George Washington Carver was uh, inventing new uses for the peanuts and sweet potatoes, and he was at, um, you know, in, near Montgomery. Um, what is it called? Oh, that's so embarrassing. <laughs> I don't know. What I can't think of where he was teaching. Oh. Anyway, um, and so I wanted to reenact her riding down Main Street and the pl the float swerving around the Boll Weevil Monument, and I wanted to use that image as a way of understanding more of the history of my hometown and where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And being able to take that work and travel it to other communities outside of Enterprise and throughout Alabama, it was really interesting. And I had heard some of these narratives about the bull weevil being sort of a racist symbol um, prior to making the project and it was just it was interesting to what is the racist well that the that uh so i learned i learned that uh george washington carver was in uh, this the bowie was erected like late 1800s i can't actually i can't even remember. this is so embarrassing actually okay. i shouldn't be talking about all this stuff if i don't know the facts no that's fine this is not google. this is not journalism google, we'll google it <laughs> Okay. Yeah, so, uh, but maybe it was in 1918 or something like that. I, I can't really remember. But around the same time um, that they, they're building a monument to a bug, praising mm -hmm. the bug for diversifying the crops. So what happened is oh. the cotton was eaten by the boll weevil. It devastated Enterprise's economy. Right. In, the, in order to make, to come back, they decided to diversify the crops because of this nasty boll weevil, which has now been eradicated, by the way. Um, and uh, in, instead of, and, and so they built a monument to the boll weevil, to the bug. The only transportation at that time would have been like horse and carriage and also uh, maybe cars, maybe, maybe, I yeah, don't know, just, but trains, starting, right? trains for sure. I do know that, which the city of progress enterprise uh was asked or asked george washington carver to come and this is what i heard at the historical society so we'll see i don't know okay but um that he was asked to come and dedicate the monument which i think is incredible mm -hmm. that they would have a black man dedicate the monument but at the same time in the perspective from the black community it should have been him that they were building the monument to um, and so that's where the question okay. of is it a racist symbol or not comes in. Um, actually, what happened is the the tracks were washed out, and George Washington Carver wasn't able the train wasn't able to get him to Enterprise, so he he didn't dedicate the monument. Um, but he's part of that larger narrative, right. and it was interesting to take this to other you know neighborhoods and communities outside of enterprise and to hear these narratives about it and to have that sort of start to think about that conversation and like and so your community in enterprise you know you've been there your grandparents were there how big is enterprise oh i don't it's facts again they facts. they evade me <laughs> um i would say 26,000 that's a so guess so you i mean a lot of people will know you and when they see you reenacting parades from the 60s they, they just are like, oh, there's Jenny. She's doing her art. I mean, like, or, or is it like a, do, do you know a lot of people think, in the community? I think you... mostly they knew, a lot of people knew her. Um, but okay. I think, you know, she's, it, Flat Granny is her image, but it doesn't, it doesn't look like her. I don't know how many people would actually recognize her as, oh, that's okay. Sarah Fine. Um, but yeah, I, they do know me. I don't know what they think. They keep it to themselves. <laughs> I'm just curious, like, you know, what your kind of reputation is in this small rural town doing this kind of very thoughtful work. You know, you, you talked at the beginning of the episode about how you never thought you would be an artist kind of coming from this community. But there are a lot of artists working in small yeah, communities. totally. And, you know, it's just interesting to me how people perceive art and sometimes the art community can seem to be outside of the real world, you know? So the stuff that you're doing is very integrated in your community. 
Yeah, and trying. I mean, I'm relying on those people to help me. Right. And I, you know, when I came, when I was building that project, a, a procession in my mind, which is that cotton project, I had to rely on, you know, help. I, I didn't have a full-time job. That was my full-time job, making things. I was digging things out of the trash, just trying to make do. But I was also trying to um, learn a lot about, like I would go to the gin to research the process of ginning cotton. And, you know, I, a lot of, and so a lot of people were interested and were kind about, they didn't get it, you know, <laughs> but they were like, they were willing to help, which was really, really lovely. And so, um, yeah. And then for a lot of, for people to volunteer, to stand within that space, not really having a whole lot of direction is what's going to happen because I built the cyclorama, uh, not really knowing what the performance of it was going to be. It was like a, a moment, not really knowing the beginning or the end, but seeing sort of this scene, uh, the theater of my mind turning on as a narrative is being told and not necessarily knowing like how to chronologically tell that narrative but to try to create that image and stand inside of it to understand what that means and so the performative aspect that was uh, in that installation was the light the light was moving there was attached to I took these wooden poles, put clamp lights on them, and attached it to dimmer switches. So they became uh, an animated aspect of the work. The The light could be moved around as if you were moving through a diorama. There was sound that would pan through the space. Um, and so you could focus on certain aspects. It was a, a really a living image. And really the the only animation to that image, it, image was that... Uh, I asked I asked the people to wave because we were on a parade float as if mm-hmm. we were in a parade we would throw cotton granny and I s- stood back to back as if like a topsy-turvy doll do you mm-hmm. know what I'm talking yes. about and we would rotate we would spin through time essentially we were sort of the 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 center of the clock and we would rotate as people would rotate around us so it was sort of about the spinning of time and old and new and um, it was just trying to sort of make sense of all of this, of this place, of this landscape, of this history, of these symbols. I mean, I want to, I'm a southerner, so I work with southern imagery. I mean, I work with imagery that's around me, cotton, turnips, all of these things are racially charged. I mean, every all the image because that's that's our history, right? Mm-hmm. And so I've, I think my current place in the work is trying to negotiate, not trying to put on, uh, not trying to, I, I don't know, I'm just trying to negotiate my whiteness and what that means and what I've inherited and what I do with that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's where I'm at. And the clogging performance, performance, which is the most current performance, is really about researching my identity. Again, I was a clogger when I was younger. Um, a award-winning <laughs> clogger, <laughs> by the way. Not that you could tell now. Uh, but so I, and I do a clogging performance with uh, Flat Granny now, not as a separate person, but she's actually on my back. Mm-hmm. So when I'm clogging and facing the audience, it's me. But when I turn around, it's Flat Granny clogging. The and clogging is a very group dance, right? There's a, does one person clog by themselves? Or is um, there always like. You can do a solo clogging routine. Yeah. You can, <laughs> but it, it usually is a group, it is mm-hmm. a community thing. Um, so I wanted to research the history of it and I found it to be incredibly interesting as well because it's, uh, it's a, it's a real American dance. Um, it's, uh, it's an, it's a cultural assimilation of Native Americans, uh, African slaves and white Europeans all being located in the South together and, um, uh, it's it's Native Americans moving through from the Trail of Tears and it's, you know hiding in different locations, being relocated. Africans being brought in through uh, New Orleans, through Mobile, uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, and then the white people, right? And uh, what what I find really interesting about that is that in order for people to understand these different dances, like 
you would think that they have to dance together, right? Like mm-hmm. that they, and dancing doesn't really happen when you don't like someone, right? You're having a good time typically. And so I thought that was a really interesting aspect, but then also to realize like, this is a predominantly, we consider it to be a white person's dance, but it, it's not really ours. Like it's, it's. But how did it come about with people coming together or was it more of like an imitation of other people dancing? You don't know. I don't know. And that's why I wanted, that's why I'm doing this project, right? It's like, um, I'm also thinking about, I'm thinking about these cultures really in unison. I'm thinking about people coming together in unity, right? right? And I'm also thinking about like me and my grandmother and we're kind of on this same path in a weird way. And like, I, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's so many unknowns about it, but I've tried to place myself within it. So, uh, and putting myself in these weird situations where people probably do think I'm a weirdo from where I'm from and, and think I'm crazy, but it's really not about, for me, it's not really about who they think I am. I think it's more for me about trying to understand this greater truth, at least, um, or purpose, right? I don't know. That's what I think. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for talking to me today, Jenny. It's been awesome to hear a little bit more about your work. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Wow, I was blown away by the breadth of Jenny Fine's practice. I really look forward to following her work and future trajectory. Thanks again to the Wiregrass Museum in Dothan for hosting us. Jenny currently has work up at the Dinah Washington Cultural Arts Center in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, as well as at the UPERC in Tuscaloosa, In November, she'll be showing at the Abrams Engel Institute for the Visual Arts at UAB in Birmingham. And in January, she has a solo show at Smith & Lens Gallery in Bay, St. Louis, Mississippi. Thanks for listening to our chat today. You can find images and related links to today's episode on the Peachy Keen page of my website at vivianliddell.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or donating to our Patreon page. Again, the link is on the Peachy Keen page of Vivian Liddell. That's V-I-V-I-A-N-L-I-D-D-E-L-L dot com. We talked a lot about agriculture in this episode, and I mentioned in the intro that I was driving through the beautiful late summer fields. Unfortunately, many of those crops that were ripe but not yet harvested were lost to Hurricane Michael. Please consider, again, donating to the Red Cross to help out the people of the Wiregrass region, as well as those on the Panhandle who are trying to rebuild after this devastating storm. You can find more info at the redcross.org website. For episode 20, I'll be talking with Tommy Scanlon, an artist and educator from Dahlonega, Georgia, who focuses on tapestry. Looking forward to chatting with her in a couple of weeks, so look out for that episode soon. Until then... I hope y'all are enjoying the fall as summer finally breaks and that your days are peachy keen.